it was St. Patrick's Day, 2014. Uh, I was in seminary. We're in North Carolina, and uh, we woke up that morning and rushed to the ER, not for the reason why you would think we'd be in the ER like most people on St. Patrick's Day, uh, but we were in there uh, because we were expecting uh, a new life. Uh, we found out that we were pregnant, but we also knew that morning that, that something had gone wrong. And so we, uh, we show up into uh, the ER that morning, and they take my wife Jenny uh, back there, and we're talking with the doctors and doing ultrasounds and all of this stuff. And, and after that, we found out that we had miscarried our first child. All that hope, all that excitement uh, that we had just recently, it seemed, shared with our family and our friends, the, the exciting news that we were going to welcome a new life. We even gave it a name, this new life. We called it Baby Crawfish. I don't know why, it just seemed fitting, uh, but we'll always remember Baby Crawfish that we lost uh, that morning. And I remember uh, that they had Jenny back um, talking to her, and I was out in the waiting room and watching the TV and St. Patrick's Day Parade was, was on the screens. And I remember just thinking, God, this is so unfair. How could these people be having so much fun while I'm here miserable, alone? It's not fair. And I know that miscarriages are common. They happen frequently, unfortunately. But there's something about grief and loss that's just irrational. It just doesn't seem to make sense. And so we uh, get our stuff together and we leave the hospital, uh, stopping by Wendy's on the way home because there's something comforting about a spicy chicken sandwich uh, when you need it. And so we go home and... Uh, I get Jenny down to rest and all of that stuff. And then I just let it out. I mean, I let God have it. And I wailed in my cries that day. I don't think that I had ever wailed before. But I let it all out there to God. Laid my heart wide open, shook my fists at the heavens, said some, said some things to God that Seminary did not teach me to say to God, but I felt them, and I meant them. And then I had to wake up the next day and uh, go to school to prepare to become a pastor. Um, I had to read my Bible, not because I wanted to, but because my grade depended upon it. I had to lead worship at a church that Sunday, a couple days after, and me and God were not on good terms that Sunday in worship. But I was also, that semester, taking a class on pastoral counseling and grief. And there was something in that class that um, it didn't stand out to me at the time, but it kind of came back to my memory in, in that moment. And it's that, that Psalm 88, it's one of the prayers in the Bible, that Psalm 88 is one of the only prayers uh, that doesn't have a happily ever after ending, like a lot of Psalms do. 
But did you know that about two-thirds of the Psalms, the prayers in the Bible, are, are Psalms of lament. They're Psalms about uh, complaining to God. Two-thirds of them are about complaining to God, complaining about God. That there's an, t- an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations that's all about complaining to God. The Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, he's often called the weeping prophet because most of what he said was lament. There's the book of Job. You know the story of Job, and it's wrestling that tension with God. Why, God, why? It's all in there, all in the Bible. The authors of Scripture, the people who brought us our faith, they obviously didn't have any trouble shaking their fists at God. And they wrestled with this tension that, that in the midst of, of bad things happening, in the midst of the story just kind of going sideways, they still believe that there is a God and that God is somehow good in the midst of it, which means that for us, there's a way forward. We don't have to totally abandon our faith when things go wrong. But during that season, I kept going back to Psalm 88, and and this is how it goes. Listen to this. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Now, now that's an important opening line because he's saying, God, I'm calling on on you because you saved me. You can save me. You've done it before, so do it again. God, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. And what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? Cry out to God. Day and night, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. God, you're not listening to me. Turn your ears to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. And then watch this. This is what happens in verse 6. It says this, You... God, you have brought me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am am, uh, confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. So did you notice that there's this shift that happened mid-prayer. He's talking about first his problem, what problems, what's going on with his life, and he shifts to now he starts blaming God. And so I don't read too much into this. I don't think that this is to be taken as you know, a theological treatise on whether God caused bad things to happen or not. That's not what we're talking about here today. That's for another day. What I think that this is really is that this is a prayer from the depths of someone's broken heart. And that often, our prayers sound a lot like that when we're in the middle of the mess and the chaos. I mean, how many times have you prayed a prayer that's like that? God, here's the trouble that I'm in, 
and I'm blaming you for it. Why did you cause this to happen to me? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Why? And that prayer, that question of, of why, it's, it's a common question. I often hear it. But when we often pray why, we're in the midst of something that's, that's really unexplainable. That, that it's not really a question of, of our mind. We're not seeking an intelligible, rational answer. But really, it's a question that comes from the depths of our hearts and our souls when we're hurting. Why? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Why did you allow this to happen to someone that I love? I hear that God is good, but what has God done for me lately, right? And so that question, why, it's natural. I mean, we have all probably prayed a prayer that sounded a lot like that. And then when I talk to people in the midst of tragedy, that's usually the question that comes out of their mouth, and it just seems to fall out of their mouth so naturally. Why? Why did this happen? That if we could just have some sort of answer to it, then, then that would make this pain just a little bit more bearable. But when we ask that why question, like Psalm 88 does, I, I think that it's, it's less about seeking an answer, and it's more about laying our hearts open and bare before God. That in this prayer, that there's this, this push and pull, God, I need you, and God, you're to blame. God, I cry out to you, and yet you don't listen to me. That the psalmist keeps crying out to God, even though God seems to be the source of his pain and his suffering. And he lets it all out there. And then we come to the end of the psalm. And you would think that, that after verses of this, and he's just letting God have it, letting it all out there, you would, you would think that it would end with something like, oh, okay, thy will be done. I mean, that's the good, like, Christian faithful thing to do, right? Like, yeah! okay, but thy will be done. But that's not how it ends. And that's what I love about this passage of scripture. So here's how Psalm 88 ends. It says this, you, God, have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And then it just ends. No final declaration of trust in God. No, no final hope. No vision of restoration. No, no praise. Most psalms end that way, but, but not Psalm 88. It just ends. Darkness is my closest friend, period. That after all of that, that's what he has to say to God. Darkness is my closest friend. Have you ever been there? when maybe you've lost someone that, that you love deeply, a close relationship, and it feels like darkness is really your closest friend. You ever wrestled with depression or know someone who has, and it can really feel like darkness is your closest friend. Here's my point that this is the Bible, y'all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. I guess, but here's, here's what I hope that you take away from it. 
I hope that you know that, that the Bible allows space for complaint. The, the Bible allows space for us to be angry and upset and hurt and to take that all before God. It, it teaches us that, that we can feel all those things and God says, it's okay. God's big enough to handle it all. That the writers of scripture, those who have passed down the faith to us, they, they seem to be very comfortable with these types of open, honest, raw prayers. But some of us might be thinking like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. That seems so uncomfortable. Like prayer was, you know, it's that thing that you like praise God and you give God thanks and you trust God. I don't know if it's okay to complain to God or, or complain about God. Doesn't God have lightning bolts in his pocket that he can just smite me down with, right? But here's the thing, that, that these types of prayers, these, these prayers of lament, they're not about turning your back on God, in fact, it's just the opposite. It's about turning to God with all of that stuff, taking all of your anger, all of your hurt, all of your pain, all that sense of injustice, and taking it to God and saying, God, look at it. Here's how I feel. Do something about it. Lament allows us the option to say, until I get through this, God, I'm going to stand toe-to-toe with you, look you in the eyeball, and we're going to figure this thing out, even though, even though I don't like you a whole lot right now. Lament keeps us groping for light, even while we sit in the midst of darkness. It's those deep, those heartfelt, those heart-aching prayers of lament that are actually prayers of, of immense faith, because here's, here's what I've come to know, or come to, to just maybe experience in my life, is that God often whispers words of grace, but pain, anger, injustice, they shout in our face. That God whispers words of grace, but pain screams in our face. And it's not that God is silent. It's just that sometimes we have a hard time hearing God when pain is screaming right at us. And so you remember the other psalm. You probably know the one that I'm talking about. You've heard it before. And right in the middle of it, it it says this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, how does it end? Are with me for you are with me. Now here's the bad news. There is a valley of the shadow of death. There's a dark place, and and yeah, you're going to have to walk through it. That's the bad news. But you all know those dark valleys. Some of you know them all too well. But the good news is that God says in the middle of it, I am with you that we're gonna get through this thing together, kicking and screaming and maybe a few obscenities here and there as well, but that's okay, because I'm here, whispering a still, small voice of grace. So Miroslav Volf, uh, a brilliant theologian, uh, he said this. He said, you can protest against the evil in the world only if you believe in a good God. Otherwise, the protest doesn't make sense sense. Let me read that again. You can protest against the evil in the world only 
if you believe in a good God, otherwise the protest doesn't make sense. Or another way that you could put it is this. I protest, therefore I believe. I protest, therefore I believe. That you can, you can protest God and say, God, you are not being fair. This isn't right. You can protest God because you believe that God can actually make a difference in some way in the situation. That there's a sense, this feeling of, of injustice, that, that I don't deserve this. They don't deserve this. Life, life just should not be this way. God, do something about it. And what lament does, what these types of prayers do, is that they keep us staring God face to face. And so think about it this way. Think about one of those relationships that you have that you feel just really safe and secure in. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's, it's your best friend. You've probably had your fair share of arguments over the years. But you come back together. But then think about some of those other relationships that you have that are fragile and superficial. And that when something goes wrong in that relationship, you're quick to throw up your hands and say, ah, forget it, I'm out. Because this, this isn't worth it. This relationship is not worth all of this pain and this heartache. You see, these prayers that we have, like Psalm 88, that's a prayer that comes from a place of confidence, security, trust in God and it keeps us standing toe-to-toe with God, even though we don't like God in the moment. And that's exactly what I needed as we drove home from the hospital on that St. Patrick's Day. Then what do I do when there's absolutely nothing that I can do? Cry out to God day and night, protesting God. But in that protest my faith was actually deepened. That, that sometimes in those moments of, of our greatest pain can also become the times of our greatest faith and, and times of our greatest healing. And it, it seems to me, and I could be wrong about this, but it just seems to me that God rarely brings healing to the things that we keep hidden or the things that we keep avoiding. That's just my hunch, but it seems like, like God rarely brings healing to things. Not that God never could, but God rarely brings healing to the things that, that we keep hidden away from God, that we keep avoiding talking about. And I think that's, that's the purpose of lament, to lay it all out there before God and say, God, here's, here's what's wrong. Here's what's happened. Here's where it hurts. I mean, think about it. What's, what's the first thing? that a parent or a teacher or a nurse says as a child comes running in, crying, tears streaming down their face, they say, tell me, where does it hurt? And I imagine that's what God is like, listening to those prayers of lament like this. So uh, when I was growing up, we, uh, we had a goat cart uh, named the Talon. This thing was awesome. 
I mean, it was, it was bad. Yeah, there's, there's a picture of it I found online. It had this eagle, like, spray-painted on the floorboard. It was so sweet. Uh, I don't know why my parents thought it would be a good idea to allow their three boys uh, to have a goat cart, but, but we did. Uh, we took the governor off of it, and it went, like, 30 miles an hour, which felt like 300, you know, when you're just a kid growing up. And uh, me and my brother, we, we took it out one day into an abandoned field at the end of our road, and we're just having a blast. I mean, we're doing donuts, we're jumping over these mounds. I mean, it's just, it's really awesome. Notice that there's not any seat belts uh, on this thing either. So we're going around uh, this, uh, this abandoned lot, and then my brother hits a ditch, and my seven-year-old, 54-pound body comes r- rocketing out of there, lands on the street, and skids a good 12 feet or so on the asphalt. And I get up, dust myself off, not crying yet, start picking bits of asphalt out of my side. My brother comes over to me, and what do you think is the first thing that he said? He said, don't tell Mom. Exactly, right? And so I didn't, for fear of my brother's wrath, when he found out that I had tattletold on him, he was the one driving, by the way, and for fear of losing our sweet talon goat cart. And so I vowed not to say a word, go back home, you know, rinse myself off with the garden hose, get all the blood off, sneak into my room, change my clothes, go into the bathroom, get like 13 little bandages to try to bandage up my side. My mom is a nurse, by the way. <laughs> and for the next week or so, I kept my road rash that was just all down my side. I kept it hidden. I didn't take off my shirt. I didn't go in the pool. But all the while, I just wanted to go to my mom and say, Mom, here's where it hurts. Here's, here's the pain. Here's, here's what happened. Can you, can you do something about it? And now I have this pretty nice little scar right on my hip from that. You see, failing to run to someone and say, here's where it hurts, can leave those lasting scars. And likewise, failing to pay attention pay attention to to that emotional pain and that hurt leaves lasting effects and lasting scars. And I think that's why we have these things of lament, these prayers of lament in the Bible, that we can come to God and say, God, here's where it hurts. And just that simple cry, I think, begins that healing process, that God rarely heals the things that, that we keep hidden from God. And so here's what else I've noticed, talking to people, counseling people throughout the years. Uh, I've noticed that, that most of the way that we were taught to deal with loss, maybe growing up, maybe you had this incident like I did with a go-kart or whatever, but most of the ways that, that we're taught to deal with loss and pain and grief and, and all of that is, is this. There's kind of three steps, and the first one is bury your feelings, not bury, that's supposed to be bury. <laughs> bury the feelings, replace the loss, time heals all wounds. Bury the feelings, just get up, dust yourself off, wipe, wipe your tears from your eyes and, and keep going, bury the feelings. And then replace the loss. Just go get a new goldfish, go get a new spouse, go get a new job. And three, 
if nothing else, you know, hey, time heals all wounds. Just give it time, and it will be just fine. But when you bury the feelings, you're burying something that is very much alive. And you've seen enough horror films to know that when you bury something that's still alive, it's going to come back and haunt you. And that's exactly what happens. That when we bury our feelings, it, it usually comes back later on down the road of life to haunt us. And it may take on a different form, an addiction, a bad habit, a fear of commitment, an overbearing, a, a need to control everything. I mean, you've heard the adage before, I think it's true, that wounded people wound people. The people who have been hurt and still haven't dealt with that pain, they have a tendency to hurt other people until they can find healing for that pain. Because what we fail to feel, what we fail to acknowledge as a feeling, what we fail to feel will eventually be felt by someone else. That what we fail to feel, the things that we fail to grieve, the things that we fail to mourn, will eventually be felt by those often closest to us. The healing doesn't happen when we keep things hidden, it just pops back up in another way. And so there's, there's no perfect way to grieve, everybody does it differently, and, and loss happens in different ways. But I know that one of the first steps in grieving isn't to just bury the feeling. I know that that's not healthy. That not to mourn, not to grieve, not to feel is not healthy. And I think that the first step in, in that long process of healing is to say, here's where it hurts. And that's what Psalm 88 is. God, here's where it hurts. And you know, if, if nothing else comes from it, if, if there's no happily ever after ending to it or to that part of our story. I think here's what happens. Even, even though we can't see, because we can't possibly see it, because it's a healing that, that takes place months, years, maybe generations down the road from that point that we're at, what happens is that when we take all that pain, that hurt, that, that sense of, of injustice, and, and we place it onto God, we place it onto a God who's big enough to handle it instead of placing it on to someone else, which we often do. We place it on our spouse, our kids, a friend, a coworker. But what we don't keep hidden, just it can't haunt us. And so let me, let me just end with this. This is one of my favorite kind of all-time passages of scripture that just kind of really changed my life. It comes from uh, Hebrews chapter four, and it says this. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest. Now, a high priest is a reference back to the ancient Jewish temple worship. The high priest was the only one who could come into the holiest of holies, the holiest place in the world to kind of meet with God once a year. And so the high priest would go into this holy place to meet with God, carrying the sins, the guilt, the shame, the injustice, the violence, the pain, carrying all of that stuff from the community and laying it before God and saying, God, here, just take this. <laughs> give us forgiveness. Give us, give us mercy. Give us restoration. 
And so the author here is saying, look, we have one of those. We, we have a great high priest who, who goes before us and goes to God for us, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we, prof- we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That we don't have one who's unable to empathize, but we have one who's been there before. And that just knocks me over with grace and keeps me hanging on to this whole faith thing. That when I don't understand, I will still choose a God like this a God who understands me, a God who, is, who has been there before. I mean, just in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he faced betrayal, abandonment, injustice, slander, mockery, isolation, physical pain, emotional pain, death. And then it ends with this. It says this in verse 16. Let us then, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us then, meaning that, that in light of everything that Jesus has gone through, in, in, light, in light of it all that, that he knows, that he has experienced, that he knows all too well, therefore let us then approach God with confidence. And that's what lament is. It's approaching God with confidence. Because when when someone can get down on your level, when you're in the middle of that dark valley, and look at your pain and your grief eyeball to eyeball, everything changes. And when someone who has been there before in life and meets you while you're still there in that place, there's this degree of, of strength and comfort, and confidence. And so Jesus knows exactly what we mean when our prayers end, darkness is my closest friend. He says, yeah, I know. I've been there. That beneath those shouts of pain and anger, is that still small voice of God whispering a word of grace. I know. I get it. And that's what the cross is. It's that answer to our prayer. That all of our grief, all of our abandonment, all of our hurt has been taken on by God. And God in return offers us grace in our time of need. That at the cross, we see that God was willing to be hurt for us that God chose to be hurt for us, and we have a God who can empathize, who knows exactly what we're going through. So would you pray with me? So God, we thank you that you know what it's like. You know our griefs, you know our troubles, you know our wounds. And you offer us grace in our time of need. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you search our hearts, that whatever wounds are there, Lord, that you would bring healing at this time. That's what we need. 
whatever sin, whatever shame, Holy Spirit, you would speak a word of forgiveness and mercy and grace over that. And we pray that your spirit would be poured out on these gifts of bread and the cup, that they would be for us the body and blood of Jesus so that we might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.